Greetings and welcome to another exciting episode of I Have So Many Questions, a show about finding enlightenment from even the most mundane interrogatories. I am your host, Brian Watson. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts at. It helps bring in new listeners as I work towards establishing my cult of personality. Here's how you can get in touch with the show. The Twitter handle is at I have so many pod or just look up I have so many questions podcast on the search function of your Twitter app. The email address is I have questions podcast at gmail.com facebook.com forward slash I have so many questions podcast. You can also leave voice messages voice recordings on the anchor.fm website for the show. The show is hosted on anchor.fm through their mobile app. It's anchor.fm forward slash I have questions. The show is streaming everywhere that you get your podcasts at, including Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Radio Public, and of course, iTunes and Apple Podcasts. I know that these episodes have been few and far between. Um, as I'm recording this, it's been about six weeks since I put out the April Fool's episode where I swapped episodes with another podcast, which go back and listen to that episode and then subscribe to that podcast. Strongly recommend that you do so. Go subscribe to The Vocal Fries. The show's been going on for about almost three years, and um, I said from the beginning I would be as diligent as I could. The caveat with that is, is that, and this is true of any podcaster, um, except for maybe Rogan, I have a life outside of this podcast, and that life takes priority. This is a hobby. This is a, an, an interest, a hobby, something that I do to amuse myself and hopefully to amuse other people. Um, it's an outlet of creative outlet, a creative outlet, uh, an outlet of energy, that type of thing. But it's not my only interest. The people that always, the podcasters that always just, um, I'm just, I just sit back and listen to an awe. Um, one or podcasters like Carlin, but the true, the true crime podcasters where they do like an hour long episode and it's just them talking and they do it all the time, like week after week after week. And it's over and it's one particular crime that they're talking about. And they go into such detail and depth. They've written a script for it. They've done the research. They've done all of this stuff. And they, and then you get that hour long of content and you've got to realize that, you know, the, the multiple, the multiplier of work and enter time and energy that went into producing that hour of content just is has to be staggering and they do it all the time and i'm like man i'm i'm kind of a i'm a half-assed podcaster i was listening to your brain on facts moxie's podcast and it was for her 150th episode and she talked about and i can't remember what the stat was but it was there's just thousands and tens of thousands hundreds of thousands maybe even millions of podcasts out there a third of them or almost half of them Never get past the first episode. So the fact that I'm on, I'm, you know, once you, once you include the quick hits, I'm somewhere in the, I think upper forties, maybe even the low fifties at this point, which is sad. I can't, I couldn't tell you the exact numbers on my own podcast. That tells you how much of a half-assed podcaster I am. But when she gave that stat, I'm just like, wow. And then I thought about for a minute, like how many podcasts have I signed up for or subscribed to where they never made it past the first episode? Or maybe the first two episodes. And I was like really bummed out because I was the premise of the podcast was really interesting. I really liked the first episode and then it just never went anywhere. Uh, there were a variety of audio dramas that have been like that. 
which is why I hesitate to try to go into that genre of podcast. Podcasting's hard. Um, my hat's off to the podcasters that do it, you know, the ones that do it every day. I don't know how they do that. You know, the ones that do it once a week or a couple times a week or two or three times a week. Uh, maybe, maybe it would be easier if it was, wasn't just me sitting in my basement office in front of a microphone, uh, waxing rhapsodic about whatever pops into my head at any given point in time. Maybe it might be different. My hat's off, though, to those podcasters that can do that kind of work and that kind of content and that kind of quality and just do it all the time. Um, I just can't. My family, my household obviously take precedent as it does with anybody or it should with anybody. If it's not, that's, you know, not for me to judge. It's just lately um, I find myself being pulled in, you know, half a dozen different directions at all times. And it's kind of a constant and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that it's a lot of kind of, for lack of a better term, squirrel. It's just a lot of squirrel. Oh, hey, I got this idea to write a book. Squirrel. Oh, hey, I want to play this video game. Squirrel. Oh, hey, I'm going to binge watch Falcon and Winter Soldier. Squirrel. Or WandaVision or, you know, Loki's coming or um, hell, I went back Saturday night. I went back and started. I think I watched the first four episodes of season one of The Mandalorian just because I wanted to. Or I'm reading a book, or I'm, try, or I'm trying to read more. My wife's really getting on me about not reading. I used to be a very vociferous, not vociferous, um, a very, a more dedicated reader. And I just haven't been in the last couple of years, really since COVID. It's kind of hard to read at home. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's because I've got all these other things I can do to distract me instead of sitting down and trying to pay attention to a book. But I have found lately that, especially... Since the end of 2020, uh, that my interests have gone elsewhere. Surprisingly, the one place my interests have not gone at all is social media. I'm barely on Facebook. I'm in. I'm in. I'm on Facebook maybe once a day, and again, it's just to see what my family is doing, my relative, what my relatives are doing, people that I know, friends I grew up with. Um, what are they doing? What's going on with them? Um, I'm on for 15 minutes. I scroll. I look back at my memories, which I always find enjoyable because. There's always pictures of my kids from when they were like three, four, five, and so forth, which are just absolutely adorable. And I cannot believe that they were ever that small um, because it's becoming further and further away. And then I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm not on Twitter as much as I used to, and I'm only on Twitter for the show. And it's just, I find that my interest in social media is just kind of waning. And maybe it's because not as much is going on on there anymore. Trump's gone. So there's not that distraction. There's not that diversion. You know, when you start getting into uh, actual political stuff that doesn't involve a orange giant, orange overweight Oompa Loompa, rage, rage tweeting all the time. Um, Twitter is like the worst forum for that type of thing. So it doesn't hold my interest. And the petty squabbles and the canceling or the attempted canceling or the alleged canceling or anything to do with cancel culture, I just find exceptionally dull and boring and does not hold my interest at all because uh, mostly because of I'm not entirely sure that what's being alleged is actual cancel culture. Um, two, I don't really give a shit. And three, just the hypocrisy that from all sides that comes with that. Well, they're just engaging in cancel culture fool you do too all the time you just don't think it's cancel culture because when you do it it's good when they do it it's bad and i'm really tired of that i'm burnt out on that and it's just 
there's just so many other things that I that I'm paying attention to that I'm getting immersed in uh, beyond j just things that are interesting to me. I've been vaccinated. I've gotten both of my shots. I got both of my shots a month ago and without any issues or side effects or anything like that. Uh, my son um, just fell into that category. He's a teenager, just fell into the category where, you know, they just got approved him for people to be able to get the vaccine. So we're getting ready to set that up. I'm really excited about that. But there's just so many other things going on as the veil of quarantine, for lack of a better phrase, is getting lifted. Um, and it's not even that I intend to go out and do all kinds of stuff. It's just nice knowing that I have the option and the weather's getting nicer and all this kind of stuff. But it's just... There are so many other things that um, are garnering my attention and garnering my attention in good ways that unfortunately something's got to give and in this particular case for the last several months it's been this show. I'm hoping to rectify that a little bit, be a little more diligent. I've got some show topics I'm interested in doing that I want to explore a little bit further and I know what you're saying and, you know, okay, this is a long preamble. Get on to the freaking topic of the show that's in the title, the subject heading of the show, the title heading of the show. We're going to talk about the Turing test finally, which I've been talking about, saying I've been going to do for like the last, I don't know, year. And we're finally doing that episode and we're doing that episode today. So I know you're probably thinking, shut up and get on with it. But I felt an explanation was sort of due, but it was also kind of a way to warm up, warm up and kind of you know, get used to recording a podcast because I haven't done that many of them lately. But on with the show. The impetus, and I've said this before, the impetus for this episode, the impetus for this topic was a movie from a few years ago called Ex Machina. It starred Oscar Isaacs, Domhnall Gleeson, and Alicia Vikander, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And it was a, Oscar Isaac plays a kind of a Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg type genius, IT genius, tech genius, who has Domhnall Gleeson, who's an employee of his, come out to his secluded residence out in the middle of nowhere. And to perform to perform the Turing test on a robot that he's created, the robot being in the visage of Alicia Vikander. And it's really remarkable special effects that are done for her. It's not like a, hey, we're going to put yellow makeup on her and give her yellow eyes and she's going to be data type of thing from next gen. Domino Gleason goes out and wins a prize, some kind of company award. And he gets the opportunity to go out and meet Oscar Isaac at his secluded, his secluded residence out in the middle of freaking nowhere. Oscar Isaac's real motive is to have Domino Gleason perform the Turing test on his robot. And over the course of the film, you get a sense of the Turing test, but also, you know, it raises questions about AI, artificial intelligence. And it raises questions, not just raises questions about AI, but it also raises questions about human beings, in particular the only two human characters in the movie are Oscar Isaac and Domino Gleason, and it raises just as many questions about them as it does about the robot played by Elise Vikander. I found the movie, and it's one of the it's a it's one of those thrillers that's a very that's a slow burn, but you're it's always it's always in a state of tension. The movie from the moment 
you kind of meet Oscar Isaac, you get the idea, something's wrong here. Something's off. And the movie builds on that tension throughout in kind of a Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, mad scientist type of way. I absolutely love that movie. I really need to come go back and, and watch it again. I, it was on Netflix recently and I didn't get around to it. I think I was trying to get through other shows. Um, I'm really bad about that. My Netflix list, I've, I'm subscribed to like half a dozen different subscription services between Disney Plus, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Peacock, Hulu, and I'm sure there's one other one I'm not even thinking of. And amazingly, not HBO Max, but that one's coming. And I just, I, there are things I'm like, I got to get around to watching this and I never get around to watching it. And then like two years later, I'm like, yeah, that seemed like a good idea at the time. I'm not interested anymore. Take it off my list. Ex Machina was a wonderful movie. Just, it just raised all kinds of questions. But the one thing that it, and it was done for a plot device. I mean, it is a plot device, but the one thing that it brought up was, you know, the whole premise of the movie was performing the Turing test. And the movie provides a brief explanation of what the Turing test is is in terms of how the movie interprets it for the purposes of the movie. And I was fascinated by the Turing test, which I've heard of before. The layman's understanding or explanation of the Turing test is a series of questions that you would ask a machine to discern whether or not the machine is, can think on its own or has a consciousness, quick and dirty, layman's, poor explanation of uh, the Turing test. If you're writing a science fiction novel or making a science fiction movie or something like that, the Turing test is a great plot device. It allows you to do all kinds of things. But that explanation that I just gave is surprisingly, um, well, actually not surprisingly, is wrong. It's, that's not what the Turing test is. That's the kind of the, the, the common understanding of the Turing test, but that's not what the Turing test actually is. Use, going to my source of sources, the, you know, the esteemed web page and web app or not web app but phone app wikipedia i did some research on the turing test and once you realize what it was originally called you understand that we've been our understanding of the test is just wrong the turing test originally called the imitation game by alan turing in 1950 is a test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior equivalent to or indistinguishable from that of a human. Turing proposed that a human evaluator would judge natural language conversations between a human and a machine designed to generate human-like responses. So you have a machine that's been programmed to with the ability to emulate, to emulate human-like responses. How you or I would engage with other human beings. The evaluator would be aware that one of the two partners in the conversation is a machine and all participants would be separated from one, one another. This is where Ex Machina got it wrong. You know, the Turing test was done in person with Donald Gleason looking at Alicia Vikander all the time. They were had direct one-on-one -on -one engagement. The conversation would be limited to a text-only channel such as a computer keyboard and screen so the result could not or would not depend on the machine's ability to render words as speech. If the evaluator cannot reliably tell the machine from the human, the machine is said to have passed the test. The test results do not depend on the machine's ability to give correct answers to questions, only how closely its answers resemble those a human would give. So it doesn't have to be right. So if you ask a machine to do a math, to do a math question, 
and the machine gives you the wrong answer, that doesn't mean it's failed the test, that just means a human being could give, and frequently does give, the wrong answers to math questions. Real, the real sinister part of it is, did the machine give the wrong answer because it didn't know what the right answer was, or did it deliberately give the wrong answer because that's what it was expected to do, or that's what it thought it should do? Think about that for a minute. The test was introduced by Turing in, the 19, in his 1950 paper, Commuting Machinery and in Computing Machinery and Intelligence, while working at the University of Manchester. It opens with the words, quote, I propose to consider the question, can machines think, unquote. Because thinking was difficult to define, Turing chose to, repla quote, replace the question by another, which is closely related to it and is expressed in relatively unambiguous words, unquote. Turing described the new form of the new form of the problem in terms of a three-person game called the imitation game, in which an interrogator asks questions of a man and a woman in another room in order to determine the correct sex of the two players. So the Turing test can actually be performed between two, two, two people with two other people, a man and a woman, and you have to try to figure out based on the answers that they give and solely based on the answers they give without hearing their voice or anything, it's in, it would be entirely text-based, which one's the man and which one's the woman, which is an interesting, if kind of sexist conceit, or con uh, yeah, sexist conceit in that it assumes that men and women speak differently, that their language, that their verbal skills are just different. Turing's new question became, quote, are there imaginable digital computers which would do well in the imitation game, unquote. Turing believed that this was one question that could actually be answered. Instead of, though, two people, one man, one woman, in separate rooms answering questions, Turing said, what if you substituted one of these participants with a machine? What would happen if you put a machine in place of uh, participant A and left participant B the same? Will the, inter will the interrogator decide wrongly as often when the game is played like this as he does when the game is played between a man and a woman? So in other words, could a machine fool a human being playing the imitation game as easily as two humans could fool the inter an interrogator uh, playing the imitation game? And this question replaced the Turing's original question of can machines think? So Turing immediately, he asked the question and then he immediately realized that the question can't be answered. It's kind of like, you know, is there a God? The question's unanswerable because you can't define God. Turing realized that asking the question, can machines think, is impossible to answer because the question, because, then, because you can't answer, well, what is a thought? Where do thoughts come from? Where does thinking originate from? To this day, in the 21st century, we have an exception. We have not really been able to determine what consciousness is. Where does it come from? What are the biological processes that allow us to be who we are, to be conscious, to be self-aware, to, um, to have the complex, the complex thoughts that we have, ideas, just, the, this, just the, the concept of an idea. Where does an idea come from? Where, where does that generate in our brain or how does it generate in our brain? We still have not really been able to answer. And I think that will be, and I think that's part, one of the things that kind of trips up artificial intelligence development. And I think that's why everybody worries about what's the future of AI going to be? How can you develop a machine that, that can think if you can't, if you can't codify what a thought is?
So before we go further into the Turing test itself, it's kind of important to talk about the man whose name, whose name is attached to the test, who is Alan Turing. Alan Turing was born in 1912. He was an English mathematician, computer scientist, logician, cryptoanalyst, philosopher, and theoretical biologist. Turing was highly influential in the development of theoretical computer science, providing a formalization of the concept of, of the algorithm and computation with the Turing machine, which can be considered a model of a general purpose computer. Turing is widely considered to be the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. Turing is considered the father of modern computing. He helped develop one of the first computers, which was just this, it took up a whole room and um, it was, its purpose was for a simple, just simple, really simple calculations that you could probably, probably one of those things where it could do simple calculations, but it, uh, you know, you could write it out probably faster than the computer could do it. Keep in mind, this was the forties and the fifties, but he's considered the father of modern computing. During World War II, Turing worked for the Government Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park, Britain's code-breaking center that produced Ultra, codename Ultra, Intelligence. They made a movie a few years ago with Benedict Cumberbatch playing Turing called The Imitation Game, and it was about Turing during World War II, his code-breaking efforts, um, as well as his personal life, which I will touch on toward the end of this episode. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Alan Turing is a tragic figure in many ways for all the wonderful things that he did and all of the wonderful ideas that he helped. He basically, he, um, he kind of redefined the second half of the 20th century and certainly the 21st century with his ideas. His impact is inescapable in every and every almost every aspect of life from going to the store for, to cars, to, um, shit everything we do online uh your phone your i'm recording this on a laptop there isn't an, and and these days there probably isn't an aspect of our lives that isn't touched or hasn't been touched in some way in some way by the work that alan turing did so that's a rough sketch of who alan turing was alan turing died in 1954 he didn't live very long and like i said i'll talk a little bit more about him and his tragic his tragic fate toward the end of the episode Researchers in the UK had been exploring machine intelligence for up to 10 years prior to the founding of the field of artificial intelligence research in 1956. It was a common topic among the members of the Ratio Club, an informal group of British cybernetics and electronics researchers that included Turing. Turing in particular had been tackling the notion of machine intelligence since at least 1941, and one of the earliest known mentions of computer intelligence was made by him in 1947. One of the more... Uh, the the initial version of uh, the Turing test was what I mentioned a moment ago. You take, you take a, an interrogator, somebody who asks the questions, and you put him against, well, not against, but with two, uh, two other entities. One's a person, the other's a machine. And the, the other person can be of either gender, doesn't matter. And then the interrogator starts asking each of them questions. And depending on the answers that are given, the interrogator um, tries to determine as best as they can which one is the machine and which one is the person. And the idea being that if the machine could, if the person, if the interrogator could not determine which was the machine and which was the person, then the machine passed the test. Or if the interrogator determined that the machine was the person and that the person was the machine, 
then the machine passed the test. The fundamental issue is whether the interrogator cannot differentiate which responder is human and which is machine. A crucial piece of any laboratory test, and this is a, a very, very true, a crucial piece of any laboratory test is that there should be a control. Turing never makes clear whether the interrogator in his test is aware that one of the participants is a computer. However, if there were a machine that did have the potential to pass a Turing test, it would be safe to assume a double-blind control would be necessary. So there is the, the awareness issue, the placebo effect, for lack of a better term. If the interrogator knows that one of the participants is a machine, does that skew, in what, in what way does that skew the results? Because again, it's entirely observational. It's entirely subjective. It is based on the interrogator. So you get 10 different interrogators, you know, you get 10 different, you, you're likely to get 10 different outcomes, even if the participants, if the only thing that changes is the interrogator. The same machine, the same person, different interrogator, you probably, you're going to get different outcomes. Now, the question is, the interrogator knows that one of the participants is a machine, how does that skew the observations of the interrogator versus whether it didn't know that it was a machine, that it was dealing with a machine? Then kind of at that point, the question is, okay, well, what's the question or what's the test? What's the interrogator trying to determine? If the interrogator doesn't know that it's one of the parties is a machine, then you know, what's the purpose of the questioning? What is, what's the, what does the interrogator know at that point? If it doesn't know that it's questioning in a machine to determine whether or not a machine can fool, fool the interrogator into thinking that it's human, then are you back to the whole gender thing? Well, the problem with that is, is that if you make it about gender, um, then there's all kinds of preconceived notions about that that comes into play with the interrogator, and you're going to get still get different results. So the kind of the question is is that if it's not, if the interrogator is not supposed to know that it's questioning a machine, if it's supposed to be a double blind experiment, then what is the what is the criteria that the interrogator is looking for? What's what is it? What is the interrogator trying to accomplish with the questions, or what's the purpose of the questions? What is the the goal or the motivation for the interrogator at that point? Um, what is what's what is it trying to determine, or what are you wanting the interrogator to try to determine? Because at some point you're going to need an, an, a subjective evaluation or a subjective analysis from the interrogator. Okay, well, what are they supposed to be analyzing? What are they supposed to be looking for? If it's not if they're not supposed to be looking for whether or not they're dealing with a machine versus a human being, or dealing with a man versus a woman, what are you? Do you make it age-based? Somebody in their 30s versus a senior citizen versus a teenager? You know, what is, what's the criteria for that if you make it a double-blind type of thing? And then obviously, if it's not a double-blind type of thing, where the interrogator knows that one of the participants is a machine and the other one is a person, does that skew the questions that it asks? Does that skew the answers that it's looking for? Does it skew how it interprets the answers that are given? All that kind of stuff. So it's not exactly, it's not a... For lack of a better phrase, it's not an exact science. This this is a test that is entirely subjective based upon the participants in the test. Um, in particular, the person asking the questions, the interrogator. It's it's entirely based on that. Then you get into the whole issue of okay, what is the criteria? What criteria are we looking for with our interrogators? What are the what are the qualifications to what are your qualifications to ask questions in a Turing test, or what should they be? That type of thing.
Having gone down that rabbit hole, back to the topic at hand. The power and appeal of the Turing test derives from its simplicity. The philosophy of mind, psychology, and modern neuroscience have been unable to provide definitions of intelligence and thinking that are sufficiently precise and general to be applied to machines. Without such, such, without such definitions, the central question of the philosophy of artificial intelligence cannot be answered. The Turing test, even if imperfect, at least provides something that can actually be measured. As such, it is pragmatic. it is a pragmatic attempt to answer a difficult philosophical question. All philosophical questions are difficult. If they weren't, philosophy wouldn't exist. It wouldn't be a genre of, of study. It wouldn't be a genre of thought. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be philosophy. And that's just with human beings. When you start bringing into philosophy regarding technology and intelligence and artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff, it gets way more complicated because you're adding, you're not peeling back the onion, you're adding layers to the onion. You're making the onion bigger. You're not making the, you're not making the onion smaller, you're making the onion bigger. And anytime you make the onion bigger, the onion becomes more complicated to really, really lean hard on that analogy. The format of the test allows the interrogator to give the question, to give the machine a wide variety of intellectual tasks. Turing wrote that, quote, the question and answer method seems to be suitable for introducing almost any one of the fields of human endeavor that we wish to include, unquote. John Hoagland, who I don't know who that is, adds that, quote, understanding the words is not enough. You have to understand the topic as well, unquote. To pass a well-designed Turing test, the machine must use natural language, reason, have knowledge, and learn. The test can be extended to include video input as well as a hatch through which objects can be passed. This would force the machine to demonstrate skilled use of well-designed vision and robotics as well. Together, these represent almost all of the major problems that artificial intelligence research would like to solve. So let's say you have a lawyer or a doctor perform the Turing test on a machine, but the lawyer and the doctor asks specific questions within their field and the machine has to answer them. And the machine has layman's understanding of both medicine and science. It can't, you cut it off from the internet. You, it can't have access to the internet. Um, it can't do a quick, you know, a microsecond Google search on what a lobotomy is or what, what a subpoena is or uh, what discovery is or anything like that. How you do a, a, a rhinoplasty. You cut it off from the internet. It's a self-contained entity, just like we are. You know, our brain is self-contained. Um, you cut it off from resources and you only know what you you only know what's stored in your brain. And then you have the lawyer and the doctor ask it the machine questions and how does the machine respond? And you take those responses and you gauge, measure the machine, the res, the results that you get. But what at the same what if at the same time though you have the doctor or the lawyer not only ask the questions of the machine to see what responses it gets, but the doctor and the lawyer provides maybe some limited information through the interactions with the machine. And you give the machine an opportunity with limited information, you give the machine an opportunity to kind of extrapolate from that. And you measure the results from what it extrapolates. Um, just as a human being does. You give a human being information and all of a sudden we start making inferences and assumptions and applying reason and logic to two things. Not necessarily accurate reason and accurate logic, but we, you know, we attempt to fill in the blanks. 
as best as we can so that we, for the purpose of trying to develop an understanding of whatever it is, whatever the subject at hand is, try to do the same thing with a machine and measure the results. You could have a machine that has the, the reasoning ability of a five-year-old. You could have a machine that has the reasoning ability of a 35-year-old. And then you get into kind of variances in terms of intelligence and, um, and uh, intuitive thinking, for lack of a better phrase, and all that kind of stuff. There is all kinds of potential with the Turing test, variances, um, both broad and very specialized and very specific, that you can perform. Obviously, it would, it would be greatly impacted by the way the test is constructed and formatted and all that type of thing. Turing did not explicitly state that the Turing test could be used as a measure of intelligence or any other human quality. He wanted to provide a, a, clear, a clear and understandable alternative to the word think which he could then use to reply to criticisms of the possibility of thinking machines and to suggest ways that research might move forward. So because you can't define what thinking is or what thought is, because we've, we've not been able to unlock that door, he's like, well, we need to think about this in different ways when it comes to machines. We can't even, we can't even explain this in regards to ourselves. We can't explain it in regards to ourselves. We certainly can't do it with machines, so we need to think about this differently. Nevertheless, the Turing test has been proposed as a measure of a machine's ability to think or its intelligence. This is where it's been kind of distorted. This proposal has received criticism from both philosophers and computer scientists. It, it assumes that an interrogator can determine if a machine is thinking by comparing its behavior with human behavior. Again, this is where everything about the interrogator comes into play. Every element of this assumption has been questioned the reliability of the interrogator's judgment, the value of comparing only behavior, and the value of comparing the machine with a human. Because of these and other considerations, some AI researchers have questioned the relevance of the test to their field. This is where I think the Turing test has gotten distorted or misconstrued, um, where it has been used to, uh, to answer a question that Turing wasn't really trying to answer. And here's where the clarification on this comes in. The Turing test does not directly test whether the computer behaves intelligently. It tests only whether the computer behaves like a human being. Since human behavior and intelligent behavior are not exactly the same thing, the, the test can fail to accurately measure human intelligence in two ways. First and foremost, some human behavior is unintelligent. You go outside for a couple hours and you're gonna see unintelligent behavior. You turn on the news and within an hour, you're gonna see unintelligent behavior. Human beings engage in unintelligent behavior every second of every day and have been since we were able to have behavior. Animals engage in unintelligent behavior. They just aren't, it's just not very sophisticated unintelligent behavior. How many times have you driven your car and a squirrel runs out into the road and instead of you know instead of running back the way it came because that's the shorter distance it just keeps going and then you don't have time to react and you run over the squirrel because it went the wrong direction that's unintelligent behavior 
The Turing test requires that the machine be able to execute all human behaviors, regardless of whether they are intelligent. It even tests for behaviors that may not be considered intelligent at all, such as the susceptibility to insults, the temptation to lie, or simply a high frequency of typing mistakes. If a machine cannot imitate these unintelligent behaviors in detail, it fails the test. The second way the test can fail to accurately measure intelligence is some human behavior is inhuman or some intelligent behavior is inhuman. The Turing test does not test for highly intelligent behaviors, such as the ability to solve difficult problems or come up with original insights. In fact, it specifically requires deception on the part of the machine. If the machine is more intelligent than a human being, it must deliberately avoid appearing too intelligent. If it were to solve a computational problem that is practically impossible for a human to solve, then the interrogator would know the program is not human and the machine would fail the test. Because it cannot measure intelligence that is beyond the ability of humans, the test cannot be used to build or evaluate systems that are more intelligent than humans. So it's not really an accurate, it's not, it doesn't, it's not a test in designed to determine whether machines can think because machines can probably do all kinds of quote unquote thinking, calculations and computations and, and that human beings simply cannot do. But the ability to do that doesn't make it more human. It makes it less human, obviously. The, the other question, there's, there's the obvious question of whether a machine imitating a human is necessarily virtuous. Um, there's, a, there's a deep philosophical question. Do we want our machines to replicate human beings or to imitate human beings or to duplicate um, human behavior given the pantheon of good and bad human behavior? Uh, do we want machines to do that? It's kind of a, it's an Asimov question. It's the three, it's the three laws of robotics question. Asimov kind of, and I don't know if there's, I don't know if Asimov was inspired in any way by Turing or, or whatever, but it's a question that Asimov raises in iRobot. It's the three laws, or it's certainly in the vein of the three laws. But do we really want machines thinking like humans? Because if we do, or if we think machines should think like humans, then we are placing, then we are placing ourselves um, on a pedestal in a way that may not be deserved or justified. But that's a different question. In practice, the test's results can easily be dominated not by the computer's intelligence, but by the attitude, skill, or naivete of the questioner, which I mentioned a moment ago. But ultimately, the Turing test is not about determining whether a machine can think. What the Turing test is ultimately about is whether a machine can fool another human, fool a human being into thinking it's a human being. It's not about the machine. It's about the person. The Turing test is ultimately about the person. Can a machine fool a human being into thinking it's human? It's kind of the Terminator type of thing. Made to look like a human being. It can bleed. In, it, it has flesh. It bleeds. It has body odor. It can sweat. Pass off as human so it can infiltrate. The Turing test is kind of the same thing. Can a machine fool a human being into thinking it's a human being? The truth of the matter is, in order for the machine to pass the test, it has to do all kinds of really shady shit in order to do so. It has to lie. That's an interesting one. Go back and if you, ever, if you go and watch Ex Machina, keep that one question in mind. Or keep that one thought in mind as you're watching that movie. And ultimately, the movie kind of 
proves what the Turing test actually is. Not the way it's conceived in the movie, but the way the Turing test actually is. Once you finish watching that movie, you're like, holy shit, this is what the Turing test really is about. This is, these are the real implications of the Turing test. And it is ultimately about deception. Because if the goal of the machine is to fool a human being into thinking it's human, then the machine has to perpetrate a lie. Inherently, it's, it's, you know, it's explicit. The machine has to perpetrate a lie. The machine has to perpetrate that it's human to fool the interrogator. That's the whole point of the test. Can a machine successfully lie to a human being to persuade it that it's human? Not exactly a virtuous test. It's a necessary test. There are all kinds of tests that we do that we don't find virtuous or, the, you know, we do them for reasons that are less than idealistic, but they're necessary. The thought of having to test a computer to see if it's capable of, f- of fooling you, because that's what it's about. It's about fooling the questioner and not just one questioner, but probably all questioners, because that means it has to be programmed that way or the machine has developed a degree of intelligence uh, or a degree of not necessarily intelligence, a degree of sophistication to where it understands that in order to that its task is to fool a human being. Well, if it has the sophistication to make that a, to make that assessment, what other assessments can it make about human beings? Because you're asking the machine, or you're programming the machine, or you're you know you're giving the machine the capability of understanding and deceiving human behavior or human observation. That's a scary thought. How many horror? How many science fiction movies are, have been written about that? Just something to think about. Mainstream AI researchers argue that trying to pass the Turing test is merely a distraction for more fruitful research. The Turing test is not an active focus of much academic or commercial effort. There are easier ways to test programs. Most current research in AI-related fields is aimed at the modest and, is aimed at modest and specific goals, such as automated scheduling, object recognition, or logistics. To test the intelligence of the programs that solve these problems, AI researchers simply give them the task directly. Which makes sense. If, you've, if you're developing a computer program that's supposed to do a very specific thing, it makes no sense to question it about, it makes no sense to give it math problems or ask it to, uh, to uh, explain what a, a rhinoplasty is. It doesn't make any sense. Second, creating lifelike simulations of human beings is a difficult problem on its own that does not need to be solved to achieve the basic goals of AI research. We don't need machines, we don't need computers to think like humans. We just need them to do specific tasks. This is kind of this is kind of a waste of time. It's um, a diversion or a distraction, or it's a it's a hobby. It's kind of a it's a it's a good it's good for philosophy, but like a lot of things in philosophy, it has no practical or pragmatic application. So why bother? Believable human characters may be interesting in a work of art, a game, or a sophisticated user interface, but they are not part of the science of creating intelligent machines, that is, machines that solve problems using intelligence. Turing wanted to provide a clear and understandable example to aid in the discussion of the philosophy of artificial intelligence. However, 
uh, researcher John McCarthy observes that the philosophy of, philosophy of AI is, quote, unlikely to have any more effect on the practice of AI research than philosophy of science generally has on the practice of science, unquote. It's a nice thought experiment, but that's about all it is, to put it bluntly. It's good for science fiction, not so much for science. In 1966, Joseph Weizenbaum, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, created a program which appeared to pass the Turing test. The program, known as ELIZA, E-L-I-Z-A, worked by examining a user's typed comments for keyboards. Kenneth Colby created Perry, P-A-R-R-Y, in 1972, a program des described as, quote, ELIZA with attitude, unquote. It attempted to model the behavior of a paranoid schizophrenic using a similar, if more advanced, approach to that employed by Weizenbaum. When Perry was tested, they did so by assuming that the interrogators did not need to know that one or more of those being interviewed was a computer during the interrogation. So the interrogator didn't know that it was dealing with a machine. And those are just a couple of examples. I'm sure there may have been others where the Turing test has been has been passed, in term, in, at least in the ways that Turing outlined it back in the day. But nowadays, we hear all about AI. You know, the big rock star of AI was the Watson supercomputer that beat Ken Jennings and the other guy, um, other Jeopardy champion, beat them handily in a game of Jeopardy. And then you saw Watson just everywhere. This is powered by Watson. The hell, the Weather Channel app uh, on my phone is powered by Watson. Uh, Watson kind of was everywhere. And then, of course, the, the concept of AI has been around since, obviously, there's Asimov, but there's, you know, HAL in 2001, and there's the Terminator, and then there's what Skynet, and then there's the Matrix, and then Ex Machina, and there will, there will continue to be stories about science fiction stories about artificial intelligence. Uh, but nowadays, you start to hear about there's more and more our stories about how AI can start doing things that we didn't think AI was going to be able to do. AI can do legal tasks. AI, um, there was, I don't know if it was Watson. I think it might've been Watson where they were using Watson to diagnose patients in kind of in a limited study. And Watson was turned out to be, do a better job of diagnosing patients than the doctors did. Um, it wasn't a high percentage, but it was higher than what the, it was, the accuracy was higher than it was for the doctors. Um, and he did it faster. I think he was still, I think his success rate was below 50%, but real doctors was below 50%, I think in the same, in the same way, but we're here all more and more about artificial intelligence, being able to do more and more accounting. Think about being, think about you doing your own taxes using TurboTax or H&R Blocks thing or Liberty Financial or whomever, any place that, you know, any software that you use, Quicken, QuickBooks, TurboTax, all that, all the places, all the software that you use to do your taxes, a lot of that's because of AI. There's an artificial, you know, as complicated and as sophisticated as the tax laws are, sophisticated is probably not the right word, complicated better. As complicated as the tax laws are, to have, a, to have software that can walk you through that is you know is it has that software has to have a degree of of intelligence to it because of the very because just of the the myriad of scenarios that can occur with just one potentially occur within one tax filing self-driving cars a lot of that has got to be based on artificial intelligence or how sophisticated the computer system is in the vehicle to what it can observe around it 
and the and the calculations and the decisions that it makes in a, you know responding to what's around it. That's why I'm I'm more skeptical about the whole self-driving part of it because in order for a self-driving vehicles to really be truly effective, all the other vehicles have to be self-driving as well. Um, you have to kind of remove the human, the human element from it because humans, especially when they're behind the wheel, make all kinds of bad decisions all the time. If they didn't, auto insurance would be the most profitable. Auto insurance might be the most profitable industry in the country because all you'd be doing is paying premiums and insurance companies wouldn't be paying out anything. The flip side of that, though, is that insurance companies wouldn't be charging you hardly any premium at all because the risk that they incur, which is what a large part of drives premium or the amount of premium, uh, the risk that it would be incurred would be negligible. You know, you might be able to pay for auto insurance for six months or a year for a small fraction of what you pay for auto insurance now. In order for a self-driving system to really, truly work and be really, truly effective, Everybody else would have to be doing the same thing in order for it to really work. And I'm not sure that you're ever going to see that happen, especially in the United States, because we really like to drive. Car fanatics, truck fanatics. My son is turning into a truck fanatic. He's 15. He's going to be driving here soon. So he's looking at vehicles and he really likes trucks. You know, I can't see him getting a self-driving pickup truck. I just don't see him doing it. Maybe later when he's older and he doesn't care as much and he's, you know, having to do a commute every day. That might uh, change his viewpoint a little bit, but now at 15, I, I just don't see that happening. Alan Turing used the imitation game to answer the question, can a machine think? However, in order to accomplish this, he changed the question to, quote, are there imaginable computers which would do well in the imitation game, unquote. The issue with this is the implication of an equivalence between what it means to think and what it means to imitate. The two actions are not synonymous, nor are they related in meaning. This is a key aspect of his rationality to use the imitation game as a test for intelligence. Without this change, Turing's test does not answer the original question. So that is the Turing test. Its original title is its accurate title, the imitation game. It's not about whether a machine can think. It's about whether a machine can fool human beings into thinking that it's human. Obviously, the other flaw in this in the Turing test is that you can't see it. You can't know it's there. But that's where the, the flaw with Ex Machina comes in is that, you know, guy knew he was talking to a robot. He was looking right at her. She was looking right at him. You could see all of her moving parts um, in some ways. So there was never any doubt that she was a machine. Now, the more accurate would have been if the, the machine, if the robot played by Elise Vikander looked human, fully human. Donald Gleason doesn't know that he's there for the Turing test. He doesn't know that he's executing the Turing test. He does. He just knows that he's there to question, you know, ask questions of this girl. That would be a more accurate Turing test. And whether she can fool him into believe into thinking that she's human, that would have been a more accurate Turing test. But it's imitation, an imitation and thought, as I mentioned a moment ago from you know my research, imitation and thought are not the same thing. Unfortunately for Turing. He never got a, really an opportunity to really flesh out these ideas beyond the philosophical and the theoretical. You have to wonder, with a man who is known as the father of modern computing, what would have happened if he had been able to live his life in full? How much different would the world be? How much different would the world be if Alan Turing had lived a full life and been able to do all the things that he was not, I wouldn't say destined to do, but all the things that he potentially could have done, all the things that he potentially could have accomplished? 
That's what makes Turing's life so tragic, especially given the fact that he only lived to be 41 or 42 years old. In 1952, Alan Turing was prosecuted for homosexual acts. The Labouchet Amendment of 1885 had mandated that, quote, gross indecency, unquote, was a criminal offense in the UK. As part of his punishment, Turing accepted chemical castration treatment with DES as an alternative to prison. Turing died in 1954, 16 days before his 42nd birthday, from cyanide poisoning. An inquest determined that Turing's death was a suicide, but it has been noted that the known evidence is also consistent with accidental poisoning. I'm not sure how a person accidentally comes into contact with cyanide, but Turing was a homosexual living in a time and in a place when you couldn't be a homosexual, and to the point where, to a degree to where a reasonable or what was considered a reasonable punishment for that type of thing was chemical castration in lieu of prison. Just, I, it just, Great Britain, everybody, in the 50s. In 2009, following an internet campaign, Prime Minister, British Prime Minister Gordon Brown made an official public apology on behalf of the British government for the appalling way he was treated, quote unquote. Queen Elizabeth II granted Turing a posthumous pardon in 2013. I don't know why it took her until 2013 to do so. The Alan Turing Law is now an informal term for a 2017 law in the United Kingdom that retroactively pardoned men cautioned or convicted under historical legislation that outlawed homosexual acts. Again, why it took until 2017 to do that, I don't know. From Turing's brief but brilliant and ultimately tragic life, we get all the wonders and virtues directly and indirectly, all the wonders and virtues of modern technology and modern computing impacts every aspect of our lives every day, from televisions to phones to computers to appliances to automobiles to to lights in our house, everything because of Alan Turing. And from Alan Turing came this wonderful philosophical question that we that fascinates us and perplexes us day in and day out because it not only it not only it not only says so many things or raises so many questions about machines but it raises so many questions about us by ourselves but also us in our relationship our evolving relationships with machines and he only lived to be 41 years old so what do you think about the turing test definitely go check out ex machina Next time you watch The Terminator or um, The Matrix, the first Matrix, don't bother with the sequels. Or when you go to see the fourth Matrix movie, which is, I guess, coming out later this year, give a thought to Alan Turing and the Turing test. But in the meantime, here's how you can get in touch with the show. Comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns are always welcome. And they can be directed to the Twitter handle at IHaveSoManyPod. Or look up I Have So Many Questions podcast on the search function of your Twitter app. The email address is I Have Questions Podcast at gmail.com. The Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash I Have So Many Questions Podcast. You can also leave a voice message on the anchor page for the show. That's anchor.fm forward slash I Have Questions. Anything that you would like to add or contribute to this topic is greatly appreciated, or any other topic. Whether it's something that I've covered, something I'm going to cover, or something I have no intention of covering anytime, anytime soon. Let me know. 
Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts at. Helps me build my cult of personality. This has been I Have So Many Questions. I have been your host, Brian Watson. Thank you for your time and for your patronage. Good night, Cleveland.